Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, I'm Mark Schwarzer and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Phil Kitramelides. Phil, how's it going, mate? Hello, Schwartzy. Um, th- there's really only one place for us to start this week, isn't there? Um... And that's unfortunately with your beloved Socceroos who were knocked out of the Asian Cup over the weekend by South Korea at the quarter-final stage. A, a heartbreaking loss. Um, sorry, I don't mean to label the point, but it really was. It really was um, uh, a quite a dramatic defeat for, for the Socceroos. Joining us for this pod is a man who played 28 times in the green and gold, Tommy Orr. Hello, Tommy. Welcome to the pod. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a shame that we've got Tommy on in, in these circumstances, you know, to talk about um, the Socceroos' exit from the from the Asian Cup. Obviously, everyone listening will know what happened in the game. But if you didn't, Australia win it, winning 1-0 deep into injury time, they conceded and then lost in extra time, 2-1, the, uh, the final score. I just want to get your your guys' sort of initial reactions to, to the game itself and then maybe the tournament as a whole. But the game, Mark, I guess it was a question of, you know, so near, so far, just, you know, seconds away from uh, seeing out what would have been a, a massive win. What did you feel of the performance overall from Australia? I I came away bitterly disappointed, of course, like, like pretty much everyone else did, I think. Um, more so because I felt that, literally what two minutes away from from making it through they i thought they did almost everything right other than obviously in hindsight a wonderful thing but the defensive kind of changes to the shape dropping too deep um didn't really play their game which is a natural tendency to do when you are winning late in a game in a knockout tournament it kind it, it it tends to happen um but it's i think it's a tale of just missed chances australia take their chances even just another one of their chances. I mean, they had three other massive, massive chances. The game's done. It, and that's the biggest disappointment. I thought they it was one of their best performances of the tournament. And, and, and I said it before, they hadn't played particularly well, but who cared? They kept getting through each round. Whereas now is there's, there's an opportunity for criticism because they get knocked out um, and maybe not, and, and certainly not performed at the level that we saw them play at the World Cup. But I thought they were slow burner moving into it, getting better and better and stronger in the tournament as it came on. So that's probably the biggest disappointment for me. And and I think it it was a a common trait throughout the tournament up until that point is that we weren't ruthless enough in front of goal. We did not take our chances. We didn't punish teams enough. And and that's how I feel um, and my, my overriding feeling after that game. Uh, Tommy, feel free to wildly disagree with Mark. I get, the, I get the feeling that you, you you kind of agree with what he's saying. No, I think that's coming later in the pod, but I think, no, nah, he's hang <laughs> on this time. So, um, yeah, it's obviously not too much to add, really. But I think, you know, games are, are won and lost in the box and um, at both ends of the pitch. So and I think that, that that rang true in this game, you know, like Swartzy touched on. I think Juki had two big chances. Um, Metcalf had one, um, you know, that... If you if you miss these chances, you always have that feeling that you might live to to kind of rue rue missing them. And obviously, we all know what happened at the end with um, Lewis Miller's um, unfortunate fell out foul in the box. And um, you know that that the, those kind of moments proved to be the difference. Uh, Tommy, one player that for me that was kind of uh, I don't I don't want to be critical, but this I was disappointed in their overall performance of the tournament was Martin Boyle. I thought yeah. I was expecting so much more from him. I, I'm a big fan. I think he's a really good player. He had a different dimension to the Socceroos. He had, I mean, he had a huge, he had a double chance in yeah. that game. Um, what The other thing I was going to ask you is, uh, Graham Arnold's decisions to take him and yeah. Craig Goodwin off. That, for me, that was just way too defensive. I think, I think I agree completely. And I think also it was quite early as well. You know, as soon as you kind of, accept and take off your attacking minded players um it's kind of you're just defending wave after wave of attack and you know i think the the best kind of defense is to to keep the ball and to pose a threat at the other end of the pitch yourself i think um and you know the benefit of hindsight it's always easy to, to nitpick and make these comments but i do wholeheartedly agree and i think you know 
Nathaniel Atkinson coming off as well. I think that was a real turning point in the game because I actually thought he had a fantastic game up until the point he came off. And, you know, you can only assume he was probably, he probably ran himself into the ground at that stage. But um, yeah, I think that like you touched on, they they were kind of key changes and key moments of the game. And um, yeah, like you said, I think a lot of the players in our front third, I thought they were probably the ones who didn't have quite the tournament, Martin Ball included, that we hoped that they would. I was uh, looking for some reaction online on social media, which I know is a, it's a dangerous thing because uh, social media isn't always representative and it is pretty visceral and emotional. But one comment I came across was uh, somebody said, are we just going to play counter-attacking football forever? Um, and it got me thinking, I mean, do Australia... Do Australia have the players, have the ability to play a little bit more? Because you look at the statistics here, it's 26% possession. The passing accuracy is 68%. As you said, Tommy, they were dropping super deep. The way that you um, can see out these games is by holding on to possession. And, 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 and you know, um, that's how you defend. Do Australia have the ability to play a little bit differently and play a little bit better? I think we do. And I think that's kind of one of the main lessons we need to take away from this tournament, because particularly in World Cup qualifying in Asia, you know, most of the games, we're going to have a lot of the ball and we're going to have to dictate the game and, you know, really control, control the possession and create chances. And I think that, like Swartzy mentioned at the start, I think that's where we really were disappointing in this tournament. I think that, you know, in the World Cup and also against Korea, when we're versing maybe stronger opponents than, than ourselves, and we can kind of stay compact and look to launch counterattacks. That's when we've actually looked our most comfortable and looked our most threatening. And I think we need to be more adaptable against these kind of, you, you can call them lower quality opposition um, to really take control of the game. And, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to selection as well, because it's, it's clear that Arnie likes the kind of physical robust, um, you know, style of player and, We've obviously got them in abundance, but I think that, you know, we've also got players like Sammy Silvera. I would have loved to have seen him get more game time in this tournament. And I think he's one that, you know, in, in the tight spaces, he can create an opening with his with his, um, with his his um pace and his excellent technique. And um, obviously he wasn't at the tournament, but even Cammy Devlin, I think he's the kind of player when, when you've got possession of the ball with his intelligent passes around the corner, that they can really make openings that we that we didn't really have in this tournament. And I think that it's going to be an important lesson to learn going forward um, to be more adaptable. Cammy Devlin's always an interesting one to me because I I, I agree with you. Like I, I'm always a bit surprised to see him, well, not a bit, very surprised not to have seen him involved, first and foremost with the Socceroos sooner. Then when he did get given an opportunity, why isn't he involved more often? I, I find that fascinating, that, that discussion. Look, I, I, I thought I thought uh, Bacchus in midfield. I think he's very lively, very good. I think he's a player that certainly you can build a midfield around. But someone like Cammy Devlin can be that that player that can I think certainly uh, have the ability to hold onto the ball more. But then you can only hold on for so long, right, Tommy? You, yeah. you need to have an outlet, right? So you need to have players up front. You need to have a system in place that. And I'm not just saying, look, this is just Mitchell Mitchell Duke, right? It's yeah. not. It's you've got to have players around, right? You can't just have one player. It doesn't matter how good the player is. He could be like the Mark Viduka of the world. He's not going to keep the ball forever. You've got to support them. And I don't think we do that enough. And the 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 thought of like playing that counter, counter football was something that we've continued all the way through. And even in the earlier stages of this tournament, it's something that we've, we've relied on heavily. Um, I always find that more recently, we struggle to break teams down. We struggle to... When we do have more possession, it's almost like, okay, what what do we do? How do we move the ball quickly across from one side to the other? Is it a case of giving more players touches and the ball go the transition of the ball is slower from one side of the pitch to the other? There just doesn't seem to be a real philosophy in that regard going forward of how to actually dominate teams when we are the the superior team and how do we break teams down and, and be more ruthless? We we just are not ruthless enough. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think if you if you go one step further and you kind of look at the last kind of couple of years and, and all the goals we have scored, a lot of them do seem to be from, you know, getting the ball into wide areas and then using our aerial domination in the box and getting crosses into the box. But I think that, you know, you need to have more elements to it than that. I think we need more players in the pocket to be less predictable. So, you know, if, if everyone knows the crosses are coming in, it's easy to defend. So I think we need to add kind of more strings to our bow and maybe look at a few different personnel as well 
to, um, you know, since, since the likes of Aaron Moy and Tom Logic have retired, we haven't really replaced them with, with those kind of players, those technical players that are so comfortable on the ball in the middle of the park. And I think we do have some young ones coming through that could potentially f- f- fulfill kind of the shoes that they left. For me, for me, one player that's obviously we've been missing sorely throughout the last 12 months, 18 months is Aiden Rustic. Because I, I, again, I think he's a player that's got that creativity. He's got the ability to be in those pockets, can score from distance, but also can create. So there's a combination of obviously having a bad injury and then not playing club team football. But there's been a key, there's a couple of players that went to this World, uh, this Asian Cup that didn't play a lot of football. And so, like, I know Rustic is fit, but he wasn't selected. And then other players who are fit and haven't been playing for their clubs have gone. So there is that selection thing, right? There is those question marks over, okay, do you forego a player of Rustic's quality and and individual brilliance and, and technical ability for a player that is more hardworking, more robust? And I think that's what Arnie's gone along, right? Would you would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that that's kind of the the I think I think Arnie would would probably admit himself that he I think he chose a squad that didn't have options to, to mix it up. I think we had a lot of the same kind of profile of player. Um, so, you know, even if you made a substitution, it was kind of a like-for-like change. We didn't really have that circuit breaker or any kind of versatility to change the game plan, um, you know, because we were obviously going to come up against different challenges like we've touched on, but we didn't have the the versatility to deal with that. And I think um, Frostich is obviously one who's, you know, technically probably our, our best player. Um, and I think he definitely would have added a lot for sure. I don't want to rub it in, guys, but this does feel like a massive opportunity loss, doesn't it? Because get through get through this game against South Korea and it's Jordan, Iran and Qatar left in the tournament. It would have been a fantastic chance to win it again. Oh, huge. You know, the thing about it is, right, so like we, we kind of go on paper and go Iran, not very... I mean, they knocked out Japan. I mean, Japan yeah. on paper should have won this tournament, in my opinion, hands down on paper, but we know that that doesn't always work. Right. So there's something seriously not right with that Japanese side, because those, that squad of players, they, they should be flying in this tournament. Um, so yeah, the, the draw opens up or did open up very nicely for me, obviously South Korea have got to be still one of the favorites to win the tournament now being, being the, the biggest name, the biggest highest ranked team in that, in those last four teams. But we've seen throughout this tournament that counts for nothing if you don't go out there and perform. And I think that was a, also that win for South Korea was a job saving win for Jürgen Klingsman because he was on the verge. If they got knocked out, I think he was gone. Um, and he's also his whole tone because the criticism I've seen leading up to the tournament or throughout the tournament is the lack of emotion and smiling too much on the sideline. That whole game, he was fully involved, fully emotional and uh, animated on the sideline. And that, that was a huge victory, not just for South Korea, but also for Jürgen Klingsman. Completely agree, and I think that I think that playing in the Middle East does add a, a little bit of a different element, though, because you know if you obviously if we had won this game, we'd be up against Jordan next. But you, you look at the Socceroos kind of record against Jordan over the last you know twelve years, and it's it's not very good actually. So hmm. um, I, I think that you know away, not, away from home, away from home is not good. At home is it's dominating, but exactly. away from home it's yeah, it's very very hit and miss. If anything, I don't know the stat exactly, but I think Jordan potentially would have the upper hand on us away from home. Exactly, and I think that you know the the conditions and probably the the supporting Qatar would be very much for Jordan. So it it would have been difficult regardless of who we we're going to come up against at this stage in the tournament. But it, you can't help but you know. But think what if, and I think that does leave a little bit of it's kind of a bit of extra salt in the wound, um, having lost that game the way we did, um, knowing that Japan is out for sure. Well, Korea is going to win the semi final, South Korea is going to win the semi final with a 99th minute winner, uh, obviously, <laughs> and then they're going to win the final with a 110th minute winner because they've been doing it lastminute.com in every single game, so it's going to happen again, I think. <laughs> possible it's absolutely possible you know the thing about it is i just think you can only go so far doing that right you can't rely that all the time they've got pretty far i know i know but but look for for me the likes of japan south korea australia semi-finals is a given that's what you need to to accomplish right and we haven't done it obviously uh japan haven't done it south korea the only one of the so-called big hitters that have done it so yeah there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of football still to be played and South Korea need to be better to win this tournament based on the other team's performances thus far throughout this tournament. What about the momentum in terms of, 
this tournament helping, you know, grow the game in Australia? Because we've seen the momentum of how Australia did really well at the World Cup, the, the Men's World Cup, and then the Women's World Cup obviously galvanised everyone. Was this maybe a, a chance uh, for the tournament to to get even more people um, interested in, um, in in soccer in, in, in Australia? Or was the time differences and everything maybe not the tournament to, to get everyone behind the, uh, the, uh, the team? I'm interested to hear, Tommy, how, how you feel that this tournament has helped with that with that aspect of it yeah i don't i don't feel like this tournament's had the hype or the gravity that the previous kind of tournaments have but at the same time you know in, in the asian cup even when we hosted the asian cup in australia in 2015 it wasn't until you kind of got to the quarters and the semis where you really started to feel the anticipation and and the, that kind of feeling of excitement around the country um yeah, I think that, you know, had we won this game, I think there'd be a lot of discussion and people talking about, oh, hold on, we, we might actually go on to win mm. this thing. But, you know, losing in the quarterfinal, I think we didn't really quite reach that moment yet. And um, obviously that's a little bit disappointing. But but overall, you know, I think that um, more broadly speaking on, on your point, I think that, you know, the, the Socceroos and the Matildas and, and the football brand in Australia, generally speaking, from a national team perspective at least, is is as strong as it's been in the last kind of, you know, eight years for sure, 10 years maybe. So I think we're in a good place and it's kind of a good platform um, to grow from and got got some exciting years to come for sure. I think for the branding, definitely. Not necessarily the performances. Obviously for the Socceroos, there's the biggest issue. Matildas did remarkably well at a home World Cup, which kind of was the, 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 the kind of the, the, the bare minimum you kind of hoped that they'd have reached the semi-final because being at a home World Cup and having all that advantage in, in so many aspects. But and I, I thought they were brilliant throughout the tournament. Um, not necessarily every performance, but the way that they dealt with the pressure I thought was outstanding. The Socceroos is an interesting one. And I think we are also experiencing the, the, the other effect of the Matildas doing so well at yeah. a home World Cup and then the Socceroos post the Qatar World Cup, now Asian Cup, where people just think, well, look, we are one of the top three teams in this tournament and we should at the very least get to the semi-final, if not to the final. I think the Asian Cup still, the, the diehard football fan is interested. Hmm. The general wider public isn't. And that's kind of the very contrast to a World Cup, which is understandable. And the World Cup is a World Cup, right? So we're always going to have that battle. And I think Tommy is absolutely spot on. It's when he gets this, you know, really to the semi-final and beyond is when people then start, the, the wider audience start to become a little bit more interested uh, in, in what the Socceroos might be doing. But there's also that case of, well, it's only an Asian Cup. Um, so, but for us as footballers, we know how big it is and we know yeah. what it's worth and, and how much we, you know, how desperate you are to try and win it. Um, so, yeah, so I think, we're, I think the Socceroos are in an interesting place because off the back of the World Cup in Qatar, they were outstanding. They overperformed in so many aspects. I said it many, many times, the best team we've ever sent to a World Cup. Not the best individuals, but the best team, certainly from performances-wise throughout it, and the, the grit and the determination, having like nearly zero expectation outside of that group to, to accomplish what they did and, and, and really make Australia proud, football fans proud, and, and, and get people on that journey was outstanding. With that, there are knock-on effects, right? So you've got to then carry that forward. And I don't, we haven't, the team, the Socceroos haven't capitalized on that success of the World Cup post it. This tournament was an absolute brilliant opportunity for them to capitalize on it. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for us and we were two minutes away from it happening. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with Schwartzy. And, and I think if you, you look um, now, what, where we kind of stand going into the next kind of World Cup qualifying campaign, you know, I think there there are a few concerns because you, you look at our kind of our front third in particular, um, you know, the likes of Mitch Duke and Craig Goodwin, Martin Boyle. I think they're all you know well over thirty now. Um, none of them are getting any younger, and obviously the the next kind of generation coming through doesn't really have that experience or exposure yet at this level. So I think there is a little bit of a gap there, and I think that it's going to be interesting to see how Arnie kind of navigates that um, in the coming kind of period, um, whether he's going to, you know, not, not clean, make a clean out or, or clean out the, the squad, but whether he's going to start to make a more aggressive transition to some younger players or what his strategy is going to be around that. Because I think a lot of these players, they're going to be too old to play in the next World Cup. 
potentially. So he's going to have to do some serious thinking and, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting and there might be some changes in the squad in the coming period for sure. Right, that's the discussion about the Socceroos and the disappointment of them being knocked out in the quarterfinals against South Korea. Almost there, two minutes to go. Anyway, let's just move on. I've got to leave it. Leave it behind. <laughs> Let it go, man. Let, Let it go. go. I know, I know. Oh, but it's just missed opportunities, isn't it, Tommy? We know what it's like when you know you're that close but that far and you let it slip and it's just like, it's deflating, isn't it? it Guys, is. I'm not even Australian and I was, uh, you know, I was, I, was, I, was, I was watching it and I couldn't believe it. So, yeah. oh, deflating. Anyway, let's move on to the Premier League. It's the, the bread and butter, isn't it? Um, it is like the best league in the world. Let's, let's not beat around the bush, isn't it, Phil? Best league in the world. It's definitely in the top two. Okay, thank you. Anyway, Liverpool, Arsenal, that was the fixture of the weekend. Um, absolutely enormous win for Arsenal. Phil, how do you feel? I mean, you know, being on the other side, really, North London, but, you know, you're the white side. But what, what did you think in general about the performance of Arsenal and the magnitude of the game? You know, Schwartz, when we talk about um, other teams on the podcast, I take my Spurs hat off and I am completely impartial, you know, I'm completely, <laughs> I, totally professional, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> You know how we've been doing this podcast <laughs> enough. Listen, I thought Arsenal, I didn't think it was an incredible performance from Arsenal. I think they did, uh, they did well. Um, I felt that they were sort of handed a lifeline by Liverpool's defending. I mean, when it's, when it's 1-1 and, and um, Arsenal are, are trying to find a way to uh, to score the second goal, but it didn't necessarily feel like it was coming. And then they handed this um, this uh, gift of a second goal and then they take the, the, the lead and Liverpool kind of lose their heads a little bit. I felt that they went a little bit wild. They didn't know how to sort of channel their emotions and they, they, they lost their heads a little bit and that played into the, um, Arsenal's hands and then they went on and scored a third. But yeah, listen, they, they got the result, which was obviously the most important thing. I think it was a good performance from Arsenal, but I think they were helped considerably by a strangely, like bizarrely poor performance from from Liverpool um, all over the pitch really because defensively they weren't great and in the midfield they were sort of weak uh, they missed Shobosly they didn't have any control there really um, yeah I actually thought it was quite a strange game it wasn't um, as a neutral watching and I am a neutral watching despite being a Spurs fan I was watching it from a neutral perspective I felt that it was a bit sort of uh, chaotic. It, it didn't feel like anyone had uh, control. It didn't feel like this is technically a brilliant match of football. It was kind of wild and kind of ended end to end, and things were happening. But it didn't feel like a you know a, a brilliant football match. Tommy, yeah. was it? Sorry, Tommy, was it Arsenal's performance yeah. in that first forty-five minutes, or was it Liverpool just not being at the levels we're used to seeing them? I think it was a combination of both. I think that. You know, the, the way that Arsenal kind of flooded the midfield, um, you obviously touched on, um, you know, Liverpool's midfield and defence not, not being up to scratch, and I think that's exactly right. But I think that Arsenal's positions and the, and the, the position, sorry, that Arsenal's midfield got themselves into just posed problems, tactical problems that, that Liverpool couldn't deal with. And I think that a lot of Liverpool's problems were tactical. I think that, you know, the, the way Arsenal was playing out from the back, that the midfield would get the ball and turn and seem to have a lot of space to run into. I think that that was a big problem for Liverpool. The spaces between the lines were uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically big. And also, I think, you know, it was two big mistakes for two of the goals, or, or at least one for sure. Uh, with Van Dijk, obviously, um, first of all, letting the ball bounce. I think that was um, a, a costly mistake, which obviously went on to lead to him and Alisson having that mix-up. But you know, that, that, that's such an out-of-character thing for Van Dijk to do something like that. And I think that was, um, yeah, something that, you know, had that not happened, you could see maybe Liverpool working themselves back into the game. But just key personnel making big mistakes was was costly for Liverpool. But that's the thing, right? So when you when you don't have, like, the slobber slide... But then, look, okay, let me just backtrack there. So slobber slide is missing. Yeah. And Salah's missing. And then... But they've done it in the past without big name players, Salah without being in the side, and they've performed far better. The space in midfield, if you give Jorginho space in midfield, he's going to hurt you. He's going to be, he's going to look like the old Jorginho, uh, Jorginho, Jorginho, I'll get it right in a second, who came when he first came to England, when he was playing at Napoli and then he first came to England. I, I was surprised at how much space he was given and how much how Liverpool weren't able to be on the front foot and close the spaces down as well as they usually do. Because Liverpool, that's normally their game. That's the thing that they do so, so well. So 
I want to know, do you think also, Tommy, is that a case because no one, Darwin Nunes wasn't there, the way they set up, um, yeah. or they just weren't on their game? Yeah, I, I think it, it was probably a, combina- a combination of a few things. But I think that, like you just mentioned, I think obviously one of the hallmarks of Liverpool's kind of style of play is suffocating the opposition in such a high-energy, high-octane style. And, you know, if you're 5% off and you're one or two seconds too slow to get to the ball or to put, to apply pressure teams like Arsenal can just rip you apart. And I think that's, that's, they seemed low on energy or they, I don't know, they just weren't as sharp as they normally were. And the flow on effect of that is that players become isolated and, you know, all of a sudden you have the likes of Saka and Martinelli and all these kind of players running at your defenders one against one. And that's where, that's kind of what we saw in, in the game. And I think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to, I think that it's difficult to blame Liverpool's midfielders um, alone because obviously they got, heavily exposed but I think they were more of a symptom of what was happening all over the pitch rather than it being their fault specifically um and like you said Sportsy, obviously if you throw in a few of the of, of the the key players missing it's probably a completely different story but you know like you said they, they've kind of dealt with that in the past not having them available but on this occasion they were unable to Schwartzy, can we talk about what happened with that second goal, please? Can you talk us through what's going on there with Alisson and, and, and Van Dijk? Well Tom, Tommy touched on it before Van Dijk, if he doesn't let the ball bounce, it's dealt with. Get your head through it, get your foot through it, whatever. It's done with. But the way that the game is being played today, it's about retention of possession. Get the ball. Any, It doesn't matter, regardless of how dangerous a position it may be, how awkward a position it is, we're going to play out of it. And for me, that was a classic example of trying to overplay, trying to play something and make something so much more difficult than it should have been. It should have been just basic defending. Get your foot through it. Get your head behind it and through it and out and away. So, so, the, the, so the you're first, blaming Van Dijk. The first mistake for me is that right. Okay, that, that's the first like error in judgment. And then the second one, of course, is the misunderstanding because when you, once you do let the ball bounce and it pops up like that, and it's a case. And I've I've been in that situation so many times. Do I come? Do I not come? Am I caught in no man's land? Is he going to put something through it in the end? Is you know, there's a collision that's going to happen. There's all these things that are running through your head in split seconds that you have to make a decision. So then it's a combination of both making bad calls, bad decisions, and the confusion is then is is, is then compounded. And of course, the only player that's watching the ball in the end sticks the ball in the back of the net. Mm-hmm. You know, Van Dyke actually continues to watch the ball after Alisson comes out, he's got half a chance to get in the right position to potentially even block it or clear it still afterwards. But he turns away and looks away from the ball. So there's a number of mistakes there. And and at the end of the day, both of them are accountable for it. And it is an uncharacteristic mistake from from two incredible players. Uh, Third goal, there was no question about Alisson. I mean, you got got nutmegged, but that's nothing to do with him really? It's just... You know what? When I first saw it, I thought, "Wow, that's that's a bad yeah. mistake." Yeah. And then, obviously, I've seen it on a number of occasions on the replay, and it takes a deflection. Yeah. That short distance takes a deflection. It just it looks worse because of the way Allison's standing. It just and then the goal beforehand. So everyone's going, "Oh God, he's having a stinker because he's made that mistake. He's been involved in that goal, and now he's got one between his legs from that distance." And it looked very awkward, and it looked very. Um, technically poor in the way he went for it, but it was a big deflection. So when things don't go in your favor, they don't go in your favor, right? So it was one of those nights where things just went against him from that point onwards and it looks it looks bad. It looks poor. But, and, the, and the first goal where he makes a save and pushes it to Saka? Um, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I, again, I think, I think it was one of those nights where it wasn't his best evenings. And okay. I think... He, I think he could have done a lot better. And, and this is where it's interesting, the criticism or the critique is that when you're critiquing certain players, you critique them at different levels because of the ability of each individual player. And that's what people get a little bit clouded about is that you go, well, hang on, you know, you're being so harsh. And well, his bar is so high. His level of performances day in, day out, week in, week out is so incredibly high. There is a level of expectation. And the expectation is that Allison actually normally on another occasion doesn't concede any goals last night because he's that good. And they are kind of pretty 
they're pretty standard saves for him normally or, or situations. And bearing in mind the second one is a joint effort and the first decision was the incorrect decision by Van, uh, Virgil van Dijk. So, you know, that's where it's, it's, it's a clouded one and it's a difficult one, but you've got to hold your hand up. I mean, I'm sure he walked in the change room and went, look, wasn't my day tonight and I'm sorry, guys, it's, 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 it's my sure. mistake. Shorty, I'm impressed. Um, as a sort of fully paid up member of the goalkeepers union, that was a very measured response. So, yeah, yeah, that was good. No, because I know what it's like. You've been there and you've well, done yeah. that and you've been in that situation and you know that you should have done so much better. You know you would have done on another day, you would have made that save. That saves that you make week in, week out. And there are, there are reasons as to why it happened. And... Some of them, one of them, certainly the second goal was the the initial decision, like I said, was out of his hands, but then compounding afterwards. And it's a bit like what Tommy said, isn't it? Because he said, you know, the outfield players were maybe 5% down on their on their level. And if Alisson's 5% down on his level as well, then it's a really high level. So just drop a little bit and, um, and we get these kind of mistakes. Yeah. Often, often though, like, because his level is so high, dropping 5% isn't such a big deal, hmm. right? But... I think the way that Liverpool play and the risk, the risk sort of kind of type of game they play, like Man City does, Arsenal to a degree, not same level, but they do. They 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 need everybody to be at those high levels every week to to win games, and they generally are, and that's why they are so successful. That's why they're ruthless. That's why they're able to continue. So my big question is now, what what does this do? Does this put a seed of doubt now for Liverpool, Tommy? Um, and then I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you, Phil, afterwards about Arsenal. Does this put them right back in the mix? And are they genuine contenders? All right, Tommy first. Yeah, for me, no. For Liverpool, um, you know, we, we've seen, you know, in in the years gone by, I think it was last last season as well, where Liverpool lost, had a heavy defeat to Villa at the start of the season. And it, they, with Klopp, they've always seemed to, to bounce back and have some kind of response. And I think that's what everybody will be expecting from them. Kind of next week, but you know that the, the, it was obviously their first loss of the season. Um, oh, sorry, second loss of the season, but first loss in quite a while. And you know the, the way that they're they're, as you just mentioned, obviously the, the way they play. If if they get exposed just a little bit, it can it can make it seem much worse than it really is. And I think that you know playing, they're not going to play the likes of Arsenal every week, and they're not going to be as exposed as they were in this game. So I think that. You know that there's for sure some learnings that they'll have to take from that game, um, and probably you know probably really really need some some players back from injury. I think as well, but at the same time, I don't think that it's going to be um, a story of of kind of a make or break for their season. I still personally think that they're they're you know it's going to be their more city that's going to go on to win it. So you're asking me if Arsenal are going to win the league, Shorty? No, I'm asking you, are they? A genuine contender now. They've not lost against any of the top six teams this season. Listen, they're they're a genuine contender because they're you know um, two points off top spot. So um, of, of 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 course they are. Okay, City have two games in hand, and if they win them, they will be top. But Arsenal are, are in there after twenty three games. You're two points off the top. You're um you're you're in, and you're Arsenal as well. You have the experience of last season. Yeah, you are a, you are a contender. I think what we need to see from Arsenal, or what Arsenal fans will want to see, is them trying to go on a like a Man City esque run of winning game after game after game because that's evidently what you need to do to to win a to win a league title. And this season, uh, their biggest run of uh, consecutive victories is four, which is. You know, it's it's not massive. They're currently on a run of three. They're away at West Ham uh, next week, so let's see if they can put together a, a run of of consecutive victories. And that's what you need um, to um, to keep pace with Manchester City and to a lesser extent Liverpool as well. So yeah, they are they are they are contenders, much more than Spurs. Um, you know, I'm putting it out there, much more than Spurs. Um, and at the moment, it's a, it's a three horse race. Obviously, by the time people are listening to this uh, podcast, they will know what Manchester City will have done against uh, against Brentford, which could condition how we how we view things a little bit. But the feeling is still that City are going to put win after win together and and, and go on to uh, to win the title. But I am. Um, you asked me last week, I think, we were about Liverpool, and we were talking about Klopp and can he can they go out on a high? And I said, yeah, I think they can. They can win the title, and I you know I, I, I quite fancy them. This result does dent those. Um, those aspirations, but they've got a, a winnable run of fixtures now, a really winnable run of fixtures. So, and they've got a, a Carabao Cup final to to boost them as well. So, I, I think Liverpool will bounce back. Yeah, for me, Man City all the way still. 
I know mm-hmm. they got and just just under nine and a half hours time they're playing Brentford away, which is have its challenges, which it always does. But I still think Man City will will win the league. But I'm hoping for a very very tightly contested competition all the way to the end. Right, let's move on to the beloved Spurs, Phil. Phil, are you pulling your hair out? Like, honestly, I mean, you've got a great head of hair, right? That's brilliant. I mean, Thanks, bro. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> so are you pulling your hair out about Spurs? And then this is the frustration with Ange, right? Because they play attractive football, attacking football, but they're always going to play. They're always going to continue to play regardless of the situation in the game. It's funny, isn't it? Because I was obviously massively frustrated when they conceded in injury time to draw 2-2 with Everton uh, this weekend. Not for the first time. And uh, producer Elliot's given us some uh, rather <clears throat> infuriating stats that Spurs have conceded eight goals in injury time this season, more than any other team. But if you flip that, Spurs have also scored goals in in, in, in injury time as well. There was the two, two injury time goals against Sheffield United. Um, there was an injury time winner against Liverpool. There was that injury time equaliser against Man City. So it just feels like it's kind of what what's going on now. It's just full on, full throttle, right to the edge for, 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 for better or worse. And obviously Tommy's played under, under Ange and, and knows a little bit about his, uh, his mentality. I mean, was that something that he was aware of when he was coaching? Were you guys aware of? Did you concede uh, late goals? Or did you feel yeah. like you were tired towards the end of games, mentally, physically? No, not really. I think that Swartzy kind of touched on it, um, you know, the the playing under all scenarios and, and not wavering from, from his philosophy regardless of the context of the game. And that is 100% true. I think that I, I distinctly remember, you know, at training and even saying, used to say something it was like don't don't play the scoreboard or the clock just play our game so so you can see that you can see that and, yeah, yeah and yeah. he used to say it all the time and I think that's this is um I, I wouldn't say if it's a result of that because I actually agree with it but I think that what happens is because you know it gets to the back end of a game and naturally as a player you'll go into a, a kind of negative mindset to protect this lead and I a bit like that... the Socceroos did. Oh, I brought the Socceroos up again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think that, um, you know, it, it's obviously a hard thing to apply because, you know, um, players aren't robots. There's, there's an emotion. There's a, there's a human element to it. And when, it, when there's five minutes left and you're exhausted, you naturally want to retreat and protect your lead. Like it's a, it's a, it's a thing. It, it's an understandable kind of decision that you would subconsciously make. But I think that if you can kind of, you know, look past that and, and, you know, the reason that Spurs was winning the game was because they did everything right and they did everything, you know, respected the process before that. So why stop doing it? That's what Ange would say. So I think, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that logic. And I think that, you know, he's obviously only six months into this tenure. And I think that as he gets more, he's, he's obviously got the buy-in and belief of the players, but I think that as he gets his own squad and he can also make the substitutes that he wants, um, you know, he, he can make, substitutes that'll make more of an impact on the game I think that these kind of things can stop this kind of trend from happening because it, w- it was something um when when he first came to Brisbane Brisbane Raw when I had him as a manager that that was a bit of a trend there used to be you know similar to this we would win some games at the death and lose some and then kind of as he's as the as the ship became more stable it, it tended just to be on the positive side and we tended just to get late goals for ourselves and not concede and I think that it was purely down to, down to this and just respecting the process and not playing the scoreboard or the clock. That's great to hear. I'm very, very encouraged by that because, yeah, and, and listen, as a, as a fan, and you know, now I'm not talking as a journalist, I'm talking as a fan. As a fan, yes, I was massively frustrated to concede that goal, but you're sort of heartened by what you were saying. You know, you can see that there is an idea. You can see that they're still trying to play. Um right until the uh until the death and and we're we're behind that idea i think so um it's frustrating but at the same time it's heartening to see spurs uh, playing such good football and disappointing to seeing them concede uh, late goals but if you're if you're telling me tommy which you are you're definitely telling me it's going to get better it's mm-hmm. going to improve then um yeah we do we do trust the process and spurs have um Spurs have dropped 18 points from winning positions so far this season but i think part of that is because they've they've scored f- first in so many games and um, they've come flying out of the blocks and it's just a, a something that I've seen time and time again making this incredible start and I guess it's just a, a matter of being able to to maintain that throughout 90 minutes scored first in 17 of the 23 matches it's uh, it's, it's it's really impressive how Spurs have started it and if as you say um, given time 
they can you know uh interiorize some of the things that he wants them to do better and can keep it going for for 90 minutes then um yeah i i hear what you're saying tommy i agree spurs are definitely going to win the league next year <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned it before about you believed in the philosophy and and it, it, like agreed with it and you wanted to play and continue to play and play in that, that sort of positive attitude sort of style of football was that a general consensus amongst all the players as well was it ever discussed afterwards i remember you played thailand away i'm not sure if you were involved where you drew 2-2 in the end and you needed mila yednak to score two penalties yeah um and it was very very fortunate result really yeah the conditions i mean it's different national team playing in asian football right we all know that because of the conditions that well, we, we know that as players i don't think yeah. the general public understand it fully because of the conditions, right? The extreme heat, the humidity, the pitch conditions. Playing at that intensity for such a long period of time, even in normal conditions like here in, in, in England, is not easy, right? It, that is really draining and very tough mentally to deal with. Yeah. It wasn't very humid at the <laughs> No, no, of no. No, I, I think it all kind of goes back to Ange's whole philosophy because if you look at other managers, if you look at, you know, a Mourinho, he, he will assess a game on its own merit and say, what do I need to do to win the particular challenges of this game? And Ange, he he has his way of doing things and he's uncompromising and unwavering. And his ability to, to make players believe in that, that is his strength, actually. So I think for him to, to for one game, to, to change something, it plants a seed of doubt in a player's mind. And the ongoing consequences of doing that will be worse than maybe winning that game, but not adhering to his principles. And I think that, you know, Ange's plan B is to do plan A better. There's only plan A. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, you can you can critique that philosophy all you like, but that that's how he operates. And I think that the the way he gets such good buy-in is because you he believes so wholeheartedly in it. So you do as well. And I think that, you know, not changing is, although sometimes maybe seen as a as a mistake. I think that's also his strength in a weird way. I I get that. I totally I can see that. I can understand that. But you and I both know in that change room, in Spurs' instance, this season they've dropped eighteen points from winning positions. Yeah, players know that. You know how many games you've dropped points in the winning positions where you think. Had we have changed a little bit, even for those last five minutes, out of those 18 points, we may have kept 10. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, I think that the flip side of that is, you know, if, if, if you say the last 10 minutes of a game, we're just going to defend and backs against the wall. And, and I'm not saying that's the wrong solution, but the next game, some player might get the wrong idea and start doing it from the 60th minute because he's feeling a bit tired or something. It, it just creates a problem that he doesn't want to exist, basically. He, he just wants players that will do what his plan on the field, implement it, and if you're not, if you can't do it, then that's it. And it, it also, I think it's easy to be accountable when everybody knows what the plan is and, you know, you either did it successfully or you didn't and you always know the reasons why, if you weren't successful, why you weren't. I think that when... Whilst I kind of agree, you know, towards the end of a game, sometimes you, you got to do the dirty, you know, roll your socks up and do what needs doing. I just know that he will never do that. So I'm just trying to explain things from how mm -hmm. I think he sees it. But I also understand why he does that because it's not about that one game. He sees it more on the big picture and implementing a philosophy and he doesn't want to undermine that. I think that that's kind of the, the scenario that's happening here. Well, next, we got the WSL as it was in action again this weekend. There was a shock result in a game involving five of our Matildas. Here's Narelle and Ash to tell you all about it. Thanks, guys. Well, yes, West Ham, who have been flirting with relegation all season, managed to upset high-flying Arsenal, who, Ash, as we know, have been chasing Chelsea and the title all season. I mean, we have been waiting for one of the chasing teams to blink. And that was Arsenal. It was Arsenal, wasn't it? And you, you probably won't, wouldn't expect it with the quality of the squad that they had. But I think it also goes to show like the work that West Ham has done to improve themselves in the January transfer window. I think now they're dangerous for like almost any team that they're going to come up against. You know, Second from the bottom of the table probably doesn't truly reflect their squad strength. So... Yeah, I mean, they're off that now, aren't they? But yeah. they're, they're, they'll be going pretty well moving into the future. Yeah, 11th to 9th. And actually, they became the first team in the WSL to name starting 11 that did not feature 
an English player. As we know, two of those are Australian. Yeah. And their fans are loving Katrina Gorey. Oh, and rightfully so. I think it's, what, did she get the fans player of the match again this week? You yep. know, they're loving her and she's doing great things for them. Like her ability to play, you know, little passes through the midfield has, has been revolutionary for them as well as the defensive work, which we've spoken about, I think, in the past. And Katrina Gorey actually gave us a really good insight to being a mum and a footballer. She posted on social media after the match saying that when she arrived for the game, her kid was sick all through the car, had to take her home, change her, wash her, got back just in time for the warm-up, which, I don't know, if that was another team, they might have probably dropped her. Yeah, exactly. It's great to see, you know, how far the workplaces come for footballers. You know, there'd be a time in the past where there'd be like a no babies rule sort of thing. And now she's doing something that every parent probably has experienced, you know, having to do a run back for a sick kid. And it's great to see the development of, of football as a workplace in West Ham. And hopefully, you know, Gori can repay, you know, everything that she can with continuing good performances. And we've actually had our first sacking in the WSL this season. Brighton manager Mal Phillips is gone and maybe that will start a trend because you don't want to be the first team to do it. Now that someone has maybe more will follow like Arsenal and Jonas Eideville. You mentioned before they are stacked. They've got Leah Williamson fully back from her ACL injury, Beth Mead, Viviana Miedema. I mean I could just go on. Yeah you could list the whole squad as quality players couldn't you and I mean the Mel Phillips one we could do a whole another podcast on I think you know she's was a bit hard done by there, but I'm sure Jonas Eidevall is under pressure. I mean, he's got a, a world-class squad there, and I think he's had enough time with that squad, despite injuries, to sort of get consistent results out of them. So I sort of wonder, you know, what they're going to do there. And they've also got some, you know, tough fixtures coming up. Uh, is it time to look elsewhere? I'm, I don't know. Well, it's almost an unwritten rule in the WSL, three strikes and you're out, no side has won the title with three losses next to their name. And I've got a very important week coming up to knockout cup matches. Yeah, it's a big week for them. And then a follow to follow that, a big fixture in the WSL. I mean, by the time we get back for the women's football wrap, we could have a new coach in, in, the, in the hot seat for Arsenal. We could. Look, we've just been hating on Arsenal this week, Schwartzy, but is it fair to expect more from this team? Yes, I think it is very fair to say that we expect a lot more from Arsenal. Um, they, I, I had them tipped as potentially going on winning the WSL this season, even more so off the back of being knocked out of the Champions League. Um, very disappointed having watched the game against West Ham. The number of chances that, again, Arsenal created was unbelievable a combination of poor finishing, um, actually mostly poor finishing, and some good goalkeeping prevented them from scoring. So that is a big, big problem um, for, for Arsenal moving forward. With all the attacking powers that they do have and they possess, they're not utilising it. There, there just doesn't seem to be the right combinations being found at the moment um, for Arsenal moving forward. And look, there's a lot of positives to be taken in terms of they're the only team to beat Chelsea this year and they not just beat them, they beat them convincingly uh, at the Emirates. So that's another reason why I can't understand why they're off the pace uh, like they are. And certainly that performance against West Ham was, was, a, was a big, big blow in any of their chances of winning the WSL this season. If you want to hear more about all the WSL action at the weekend, then the women's football wrap is now on the Optus Sport app. Next up, we're going to chat La Liga, but first, here's a taste of what we've got coming up on Optus Sport. It's a massive month ahead. February on Optus Sport. Feb 7 and 8, quarterfinals of the men's DFB Pokal. Feb 11, the top two go toe-to-toe. Real Madrid, Girona. Feb 12, can the Hammers upset Arsenal again? And Villa, out to break their Man United hoodoo. Feb 18 and 19, City-Chelsea twice. Replay of the 4-4 thriller, then a top-of-the-table clash. Feb 24, it's Ange's turn to take on Chelsea. All in February on Optus Sport. So, Phil, La Liga, it's your bread and butter. You think it's one of the top two leagues in the world. Okay. All right. Definitely I'm, not gonna, there. I'm not going to argue with you right now, right? It is definitely very, very good. And it's entertaining. But the Madrid derby, talk us through it. You were at the game. What was, was it like being there? I watched the game and dogged performance from Atletico Madrid. Kind of managed the game. Real, a little bit disappointing. Potentially, yeah. Obviously, finished 1-1, uh, for those who don't know. Um, Atletico Madrid scoring in the 94th minute uh, to uh, claim a, a draw, which was um, 
not that important for them, but it's actually really important for the title race because it means that Real Madrid stay um, just a couple of points above uh, Girona. And next week, it's Real Madrid against Girona. Uh, so that's a, a terrific game for everybody to watch on on Optus Sport. The game itself, listen, Real Madrid were playing with their centre-back pairing was their fourth and sixth choice uh, centre-backs. Um, they had Danny Carvajal playing as a centre-back. Danny Carvajal is a five-foot-eight right-back. He is, he is not a centre-back, and he actually did pretty, pretty well, apart from in the 94th minute when he and, him and Nacho uh, got mixed up and uh, Marcos Llorente uh, took uh, took full advantage. So it was a patched-up Real Madrid team. They, 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 they lost Vinicius in the warm-up as well, so Brian Diaz came... Uh, came on into the starting eleven and played brilliantly, really, really brilliantly. Uh, scored a, um, a good goal as well and was a constant menace. So it was. Um, Diego Simeone afterwards said it's a weird game. It was a weird game. Uh, I don't know what you guys felt. That's what he said. But I, I felt it was a weird game, and it was a little bit because um, neither side played brilliantly, but both sides had had pretty good chances. Atleti, I think they just figured out quite quickly that Real Madrid have got this. Really weird centre-back pairing. Let's put loads of crosses into the box and see what, what happens. And and they cause problems with every single corner. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't in terms of a spectacle. We'd had some Madrid derbies in, in, in recent weeks in the Copa del Rey and the Spanish Super Cup that were uh, really quite thrilling, uh, going to extra time and, and, and terrific, terrific matches. This was different. Obviously, it was a league game. It wasn't in a in a cup tournament, so uh, the context was a little bit different. But I was at the stadium, and when you're at a stadium and you're at a derby, and there it's a game with 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 some chances. I actually felt it was quite entertaining. So I was sitting there in the stadium watching it, feeling yeah, this was quite an entertaining game. Maybe guys watching at home had a, had a sort of different um, view of it. And the Madrid derby is an interesting one in terms of. In terms of the actual rivalry, because Real Madrid are so much bigger than Atletico Madrid in terms of success, in terms of global reach, in terms of wealth, they are massive. And yet, Atletico Madrid are still able to compete with them consistently. They have been able to beat them to league titles, beat them to Copa del Rey titles. They've um, caused them problems. They've beaten them this season twice. So um, it's, it's just a really interesting dynamic, uh, the way that these two sets of supporters and these two clubs uh, meet every time in this in this cross city cross city rival. And I was trying to compare it to other derbies around around Europe, and it's it's kind of unique because if you think about other big cross city derbies, Milan derby, well they're both they're both huge. Liverpool Liverpool are much bigger than Everton, and Everton can't really compete with with Liverpool. Manchester, you know, that's 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 completely off the scale in terms of um, imbalance. I don't know. This is this is quite unique because it is an imbalance. Uh, rivalry, but at the same time, Atletico compete really, really heavily. So um, I think it's I think it's the biggest cross city derby in Europe. Um, Mark, I was I was trying to trying to think about this, and no other city has had two Champions League finals with two teams from that city. It is a it's a, it's a massive deal, and at the same time, it gets eclipsed by El Clasico in terms of Spanish football because that is a bigger fixture. But this is this is a big deal. This is a big deal. I don't know. See, that's a, that's a big call. That Tommy is it, it, like, are you gonna are you buying into that one? I mean, I'm thinking about the Milan derby. I know what you're saying two teams, two big derby, uh, sort of rivals that have played each other in a Champions League final. But there's some big ones. There's some, yeah. some massive ones. Yeah, obviously Milan, you just touched on. But, but aside from that, it's hard to think of too many other examples. Um, um, you know, I mean, maybe... London's so big. London's yeah. so big. London, there's so many different derbies within within London. And yeah, none I mean, of them, even Arsenal Spurs, you know, in terms of visceral sort of hatred and passion, yeah, in terms of a big fixture between two European powerhouses, it's 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 not... Yeah. Well, well, City United were probably the closest. Obviously, United have dropped off, but City United still, I think, is still right up there with with being a huge, huge fixture and rivalry and 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 uh, hatred and everything else. Um, yeah, so and I, I guess with that one, the 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 gap, you know, the the quality of of United and City's only recently become quite similar. You know, so yeah. You know, if you're going back in a in a, a longer kind of scale or a bigger scale, there probably was a bit more of a gulf in class between the two teams. Whereas Atletico was, you know, on a historical timeline, maybe more competitive than City used to be. So it is different from that perspective. Um, yeah, I guess. But yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm um, looking forward to hopefully getting to one of the games one day because it sounds like a, a great experience. 
Tommy, you mentioned off air earlier on your favourite player was Thierry Henry. That's why you supported Arsenal. But now you actually support Spurs because of Ange, <laughs> which is, ooh, I mean, Phil's happy about it. Um, welcome, Antoine, welcome, Tommy. Welcome. Antoine Griezmann, what do you make of him? As in, he's one of those players, I always feel, Phil and I have had this discussion in the past about him. I get frustrated by him because I think he's unbelievable at times, but then other times I think he's lazy. Like last night, I thought again, there were times where, nah, I'm not, Phil, I know Phil's not agreeing with me, but I'm not, I'm not convinced. Yeah. No, well, obviously I think that, you know, his time in Barcelona kind of put a bit of a dent in everybody's mind of of the caliber of, of him because, you know, at the time when he transferred to Barcelona, when he was playing for France, he was on fire and, you know, he, he was, he had the kind of world, world at his feet. I think he was, you know, number three player in the world in the Ballon d'Or that year. Um, he was flying. But I think that there was a few years there when he was at Barcelona where you could tell his confidence was, was severely dented. But I think this season he, he's he's kind of found maybe not quite the level he had before he went to Barcelona, but very close. And I think that it's been, um, he's been fantastic. And, you know, like you said, this, this was quite a, a peculiar game. So, um, he didn't. He wasn't necessarily at his best the whole game, but in there were some key passes and some key moments where he he you could see his quality. And um, you know, I personally love watching him play, but I do agree. I, I think he is a little bit of an enigma, and it's um hard. It's hard to pinpoint you know what why sometimes he does seem to go missing in games. But um, yeah, you know, overall, I thought that you know, in this game he he was quite quite influential, but. Um, I, I do think, just going back to this game, however, though, I do think that Real Madrid was probably a little bit unlucky. I'm not sure what you guys think, but but to have a couple of penalties, I think there was there was two moments um, where the, the legs got tangled in the box, and I thought that you know maybe one of them in particular deserved maybe looking at a bit further. But I'm not sure if you saw it. But yeah, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of people have talked about that here, Tommy, um, <laughs> because in, in Spain, let me just you know, in Spain, people just love love to talk about penalties love to talk about referees don't actually like talking about football that much but they, they, they do love talking about the referees so yeah obviously Real Madrid fans claiming that there should have been at least a, a couple of penalties uh, given uh, on, uh, on on Jude Bellingham uh, I think but um, yeah I mean I think it's one that if the re- I don't think it's for VAR to decide I think it's if the referee sees it and decides it's not a penalty then he's decided it's not a penalty um, I don't think it's a flagrant uh, mistake for the um, for the VAR to get involved although if I was a referee I might I might possibly have given it but that's not what VAR is for I don't yeah, yeah. Uh, so the other massive news of course in world football regarding Real Madrid as well is Mbappe supposedly he's decided he wants to go to Real Madrid now Phil are we even going to believe this? Because we've heard this before. We've been here before. We're now a couple of years down the line. And he's still, don't forget. Well, yeah. But don't forget, he still he still has the option to lengthen his contract at PSG for another year. Yes, Mark, he does. Which he has done in the past. Yes. Consistently. So, yes. Listen, uh, this feels like it is um, a pretty serious confirmation that it is it is it is on uh, various different sources uh, have been have been suggesting that it is it is happening but this has been going on for 6 years now um so it is uh, difficult to to fully accept that it might actually finally happen but guys i think that it might actually finally happen this this feels like um the closest we've ever had to to it being 100% confirmed and listen if this happens it's terrific for real madrid uh, and really bad news for the rest of La Liga because I think it's just going to elevate Real Madrid to a, a level where they're not going to be caught for some time. And Barcelona being in the straits that they're in, uh, financially they cannot compete with the level of uh, signing um, and their squad is not at the level uh, to compete with uh, Real Madrid if, if Mbappe comes in. Atleti have a, have a really, really good squad, really, really talented squad, but I feel like, Mbappe just elevates Real Madrid's team to the next level. Um, and yeah, it's bad news for the rest of the teams in La Liga if Mbappe comes because Real Madrid is going to be so much better. But it's um, it's going to be fantastic to, to watch him finally, to see where and how he fits into this team, whether he's on the left where Vinicius Jr. likes to play, whether it's through the middle, is there a place for Rodrigo? How does Jude Bellingham link up with him? There's a lot of things that we... Um, we can and will analyse as and when this is finalised. But at the time of recording, it isn't. But it's it's so um, 
it's so well sourced this story that I think we we, we can be close to getting getting excited because it feels like it, it might finally be happening. Tommy, is he the best player? Mbappe, is he that good? Is he worth that much? Is he worth the weight? Is he worth all the aggravation? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I always thought with Mbappe it was an interesting one because it, it's, you know, I think Real Madrid is the club for him. I think that he wouldn't fit, you know, a Barcelona. His personality and, you know, his, it's the Mbappe show. You know, he's the centre of attention. Everything revolves around him. You can see that at PSG now and the whole soap opera that we've just discussed. He loves the attention. He kind of relishes in it. And I, I personally would love to see him go there. And I think that, you know, I can understand the value and I think that he would live up to the expectations because, you know, the, the Vinicius, Mbappe, Bellingham, you just touched on all the players. I think that that makes Real Madrid's front third comfortably the best in the world um, if he goes there. And I don't just think it'll be the other teams in Spain, but all the other teams in Europe that are hoping that that doesn't eventuate, to be honest. I think you've just upset a whole lot of Liverpool and Man City fans. I mean, Liverpool, look, Man City are the best team in the world. Let's be honest. They are treble winners, best team on the planet right now. So you think with Mbappe, Real Madrid will be the best front three? I do, actually. I think that, you know, the PSG, the only reason they've kind of, and obviously they've been very underwhelming in, in recent times, but the only reason they've been kind of competitive at all is because of him. In, in recent seasons. And I think that, you know, what, what Mbappe does for France, um, you know, it, he's remarkable and nobody else in the world can do that. And I think that that's what Real Madrid will be looking looking at. And Messi, how can... Messi, Messi. Well, nah, Messi, Messi's in it. Yeah. <laughs> Different discussion, but okay, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe Messi five years ago. But, you know, the, the pace of Mbappe, it just adds an element that no one in the world, ha- no one else in the world has. And, you know, Haaland, for example, he's, you know, one of the, you know, it, it's those two. That's the discussion. And they're obviously completely different in terms of style. But I I personally would love to see um, Mbappe at Real Madrid um, over Haaland if that was the choice. Right, Phil. Hashtag always watch Girona. I watched them. Good. Nil, nil. <laughs> what, like, honestly, I, I, like, oh, mate. I tell you what. Oh, no, I, no, said, no, no. I did, said it did message. Did you actually watch this? Did you actually I, watch this? Of course game? I this, did. This was an exciting nil, nil. It wasn't a snooze fest as um, producer Elliot's put on the rundown. This was an exciting game. No, I don't know about an exciting game, right? So, I no goals and it was frustrating. And to be fair, I'll hold my hand up. You took personal responsibility for lack of goals, guys. And I accepted your apology. So, thank you very much for that. <laughs> Yeah, short two messaged me going, I'm watching Girona, there's no goals, so boring. Yeah, I was just like, well, all right, I'm sorry. It's absolutely my fault. To be fair, it is my fault because I've, I've been ramming it down your throat to always exactly. watch them. So. That's I, I, thought, I thought this was an entertaining game. They drew nil-nil with, uh, with Real Sociedad, who are a very good team in the Champions League and um, came there and gave them, a, gave them a good game. And actually, this um, turned into be not such a bad result for uh, Girona's very unexpected title push because of that 94th minute goal from Marcos Llorente at the Bernabeu last night. So it's Real Madrid on 58 points, Girona on 56 points, and then they meet at the Bernabeu on Saturday. Another game which I've uh, very surprisingly managed to uh, get uh, access for, uh, Mark. So uh, uh, Tommy uh, Schwartz gives me stick because I missed the last Madrid derby at the Metropolitano a few months ago because I wasn't feeling very well. I had a ticket, but I didn't go. And he cannot believe that I didn't go. And he's been giving me stick basically every single week on every single podcast. I'm not going to that. Last night, I was a little bit feeling a little bit ill, actually. And I thought, I've got to go to this one because if I don't go to this one, he's never going to let me on a podcast again. So um, I'm going to Real Madrid against Girona and I'm looking forward to it because... If Llorente hadn't scored that goal in the 94th minute, Real Madrid would be four points clear. They beat Girona. They're seven points clear of them. And it's more or less, more or less, title done. It's not, though. It is fully game on. And if Girona win at the Bernabeu, they go a point clear. So we've got a real title race in La Liga uh, between two unexpected teams. Is it possible, though? Girona lost, obviously, at home to Real Madrid 3-0. It's the only game they've lost at home um, this season. Yes. Do you see them going to the Bernabeu and getting a result? Uh, they're missing two key players who are yeah. suspended. Daily Blind, uh, centre-back, he's suspended. And Yangel Herrera in midfield, he's suspended as well. The manager's suspended as well. Uh, it was it was quite a fiery game against uh, Real Sociedad. Um, 
I think they cannot lose. And, you know, if they don't lose, then they're still in it uh, because it's, it's still only uh, only two points. I think winning might be uh, might be a very difficult ask, but I think they can go there and not lose and keep the title race going. Yeah, I do. Uh, Barcelona continue the winning ways, winning away at Alaves um, post-Javi announcement that he's leading into the season. Just sort yeah. of kind of keeps them in the running, eight points off. It kind of keeps them in the running. Yeah, I mean, the good news for them is uh, Vito Roque scoring, uh, the uh, new signing who scored in, in two consecutive uh, games now. He then got sent off um, in a uh, slightly questionable uh, second yellow card. But um, that's that's good news for them. And it was a, a slightly better performance. I still think it's not vintage Barcelona by any means. And I still don't see this massive reaction from the players feeling liberated after Xavi announced that he was leaving at the end of the season. But, you know, it's two wins out of two since he made this announcement. So maybe there has been uh, some some kind of small reaction. But I don't know, midweek, they beat Osasuna 1-0 in a really kind of drab game. And it was heard Xavi, he was speaking to us on, on the coverage on, on, on Optus Sport. And we heard him say... You know, I'm really happy. We played really well. Um, we saw a definite reaction, and everybody's kind of looking at each other in the studio. Really? Does, I mean, does he does he actually believe this, or is he just because he's such a positive guy, Chabby, that he comes out and he says this, and we won, and we saw a reaction, and we played well, and I mean, that wasn't the case. Certainly not against Osasuna, against Alaves. It was it was marginally better, but it's 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 still not amazing. But hey, they won they won two games out of two, so uh, let's see if they can keep on winning. Just a reminder, that game, Girona against Real Madrid next weekend, is, of course, live on Optus Sport. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Phil, again for, for joining us. Thanks, Shorty. And thanks, Tommy. Thanks uh, for having you on the podcast. Great to see you after quite a long time. I think you mentioned earlier on, over a year since we've seen each other last. It has been. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Excellent stuff. Remember, you can watch every game in the Premier League, La Liga, and the WSL live and exclusive on Optus Sport. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.